So let's go to Acts chapter 18. You say, I thought this was about 1 Corinthians. Well, in Acts chapter 18, what we see is Paul's planting of the church in Corinth. And so we're going to spend much of our time here. We're going to look a little bit at 1 Corinthians as well, chapter 1, but primarily 1 Corinthians 18 to kind of give us a background of the history and goings-on, if you will, of the church in Corinth and its planting. Let's begin in verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads, I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named uh, Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. Uh, But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Now turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we'll begin reading in verse 18. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 25. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. I'll tell you what, that's all I'm going to read this morning, right there. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask God to be with us as we begin this series. Father, there are many people that could do a better job than what I will do today in the next few weeks. But I'm the one that you called to stand for truth, to put the message that is confusing us as your children today in this specific time that we live in, to address it with your word, to address it with your gospel, to try to make sense of it, to try to call the 
the seemingly truth statements that culture makes and really doesn't even tolerate an argument or a discussion to light and into question. And so, Jesus, we need you to show up. If we are in my hands, we are in deep, deep trouble. But, Lord Jesus, you said, where two or three are together in your name, there you are. And you have told us that we are to use our gifts and we are to submit to your word and we are to let you speak to us by your spirit because your spirit makes all things that you reveal true. And so do that among us. Father, help us to be a better church and a better people because of this series. I pray that believers, that you would help us to be firmer in our faith, more clear in our understanding and our commitment to Jesus the Christ and to his work and to the mission that he's called us to because of this series that we are entering today. And I pray that some here and some that will visit over the next few weeks would be convinced that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life that he's willing to give one's life for because he is the hidden pearl. He is the treasure. He is eternal life. And he is joy. Oh God, would you come by your spirit. I confess my weakness. Come now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Shane Sun, my longtime friend and church planner, uh, fellow church planner in Denver, Colorado, and I went fishing uh, to catch salmon on the coast of uh, Vancouver Island, kind of the northern coast of Vancouver Island. And we caught a lot of salmon. Um, we did, I would say, pretty well. Oh, look at that. There's a picture. I, I didn't know that was going to be up there. Uh, look at the size of that fish, people. That must be a really good fisherman uh, behind that. Um, yeah, that is that was such a joke. Uh, I was using bait and in a place that I never should have even caught that fish. So even to God be the glory for that. Uh, while in the boat one day, we were out in the Pacific Ocean. Uh, Shane, who had taken this trip many times before, told me a story. He said that one day while he was fishing, that a fog rolled in. And one minute he could see perfectly, and the next minute he could see nothing but about two or three feet in front of him. And um, before he left the shore, he had set his GPS device, um, the coordinates there at the boat dock, because he knew that he could get lost. He never thought about fog. Um, but he said as soon as the fog rolled in, he went to his GPS, and he, he hit start backtracking, And the direction that the GPS told him to go, in his mind, was wrong. He just felt as if there is no way that that way is true and that way is the way home. And yet he followed it because he knew better than to trust his senses in the midst of the fog. And he got back within feet of where he launched. And friends, as I have spent hours and days and actually a couple of months considering this whole topic of of the doubts and skepticism that I believe have settled on the church, that illustration is how I view it. I feel like a fog has settled on us as believers. And I mean that in the church. 
this series is definitely for anybody that wants to come, but to be honest with you, I'm really addressing it to us, those of us who call ourselves believers, because we are the ones that doubt. We are the ones that listen to the message of the culture and we are the ones that shrink back so often and we're not willing to stand for what God has clearly said is true in His Word and yet we need to address it. I think the very heart of the reason that we are skeptical in this day and age in the church, in downtown Memphis, in midtown Memphis, in East Memphis, in West Memphis, in North Memphis and South Memphis is because the culture is constantly preaching a message that would make us doubt it. If you just look at the bumper stickers that, it, that um, are on people's cars, like Coexist, which you've seen our poster, and you see um, the car above me, we see them all over the place. Uh, if you simply listen to the music of the day, and especially the, the music that we listen to the most or that is played the most, you hear songs like Happy by Will Ferrell that says, clap along if you feel that happiness is the truth. And man, we're all just, you know. <laughs> oh, I'm so happy driving down Poplar, you know. And we really believe it's truth. We really believe that being happy is what matters. I was sat down with one of our young professionals recently and I asked him, I said, what do people your age believe? And he said, to be honest with you, Richard, we don't, it's not that we don't believe in, in, in God. We believe in God, but what we fear is that to come to faith in the God of Christianity is to, is to threaten our fun. And indeed, we worship fun. And that's why a statement such as, a person should be able to love and marry whomever makes them happy connects with us. Because there's something... It sounds right about that. Shouldn't I be able to love whomever I, 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 I can love or I want to love? Shouldn't I be happy? Isn't that what's important? Isn't that what should be true? But the problem is, if happiness is the gospel, then we begin to question why we have to be against anything or against anybody. I mean, how can we be against Ellen? I mean, everybody loves Ellen. I've got her recorded into my DVR five days a week. I love Ellen. I think she was the best host at, what was it, the, the, not the Emmys, the Grammys, Oscars, something like that. She was incredible. The best I've ever seen. So how can we be against Ellen? And to be honest with you, if we were, if we were to take a vote this morning, who would rather spend a day with Ellen or a day with the Christian, those that call themselves Christian at Westboro Baptist Church, who would you choose? <laughs> I mean, most of us would choose Ellen. Growing up, really before the, believe it or not, I'm going to show my age here, there really was a time in my lifetime when the internet didn't exist. And so in sermons, I would hear about the hypothetical um, innocent native in Africa. Y'all, anybody here? Raise your hand if you ever remember that. There we, go. we got some. This hypothetical innocent native in Africa. And this picture came to mind of this person maybe with some deer skin, you know, clad around their midsection or not. And, you know, them who could never be exposed to this, this hypothetical person. But now that hypothetical person doesn't exist. You see, the 1.6 billion Muslims 
are our neighbors and our co-workers. They're our Facebook friends. Uh, those that preachers rant on talking about homosexuality are our co-workers and our friends and our neighbors that we dearly love. <laughs> and so it's much more personal now. And when we go further, we, we ask this question, um, how in the world can we make a stand against the very people that we're in relationship with or in a culture that would look upon us as if we didn't have a brain if we made a stand? Because to make a stand in our day really is to kind of get that look of, oh, you poor thing. Do you even have a brain? I mean, you're going to question this, or you're going to question that, or you're going to claim that Christianity is the only true religion? Come on. And whereas that may sound like an insignificant thing, it's not. Because that's how we got into this mess. If you go back to Genesis, you see that the very thing that, that made Eve stop just a second was the indictment and was this question, did, do you really believe, did God really say? Come on, Eve. Really? It wasn't a phrase, it wasn't a question, it was a sneer. Really? And we get that. Because that's what we fear. We fear being discounted by those that we respect. We fear being marginalized as intellectually foolish. And we fear that. We fear being getting the label of non-inclusive or uh, narrow-minded more than we love the truth of God and are convinced of the truth of God. And when I say that, I mean we. Because I've been there too. And so how do we address all of this? Where do we go? And the reason that I'm bringing it up in church is because the church, I think, has handled it so, so poorly. I mean, we have felt not the freedom to come to church and say, well, tell me why I shouldn't believe, or tell me, tell me about this truth claim of Christianity, and what does that mean about Islam? What does that mean about Buddhism? What does that mean about Hinduism? I mean, what should the church's place be in the culture in defining marriage and, and who gets married and who doesn't? I mean, you're scared to ask those questions because in most churches you would be beat down with the same sneer that you get in the world. Oh, you poor little thing. Let me just give you this book. Let me give you this little Bible study. You go figure it out and then come back. As opposed to taking it honestly and saying, I get it. I get it. And so what I want to do this morning, and what I want to do over the next several weeks is say, I think I get it. And you might not love everything that I say, and it might tick you off, but can we at least say that, hey, we're doing some good here and at least talking about it. And so this morning, all I want to do is introduce pretty much where Paul is coming from is I believe he is approaching a very similar situation in the port town of Corinth. And I'm going to take the same approach that he does and help us get into these issues and into these questions. And the first thing I want us to see this morning is this. Believers will doubt and will need God's reaffirming presence. It is inevitable that you and I will doubt and we will all need God's reaffirming presence. I was with somebody this week and uh, by phone. I'm in this coaching cohort. 
And what that means is uh, I'm with four other guys on the phone, and we're all encouraging each other in Christ and giving each other coaching advice as, as fellow ministers in, in the church. And one of the guys is in another state in a fairly large city, and in 16 years ago, he started a nonprofit ministry. And he is, he moved into an under-resourced neighborhood, and he has been giving his life to those that live in that neighborhood. Um, one of the men, a couple of years ago, came to know Jesus Christ, and they became close friends. And this person even, you know, facilitated the marriage of, uh, of he and his wife, and they've had children, and he just is in a discipleship relationship with him. Um, they're great friends. They see each other all the time. They're in each other's homes. And he said, uh, he said, a couple of weeks ago, my friend had an affair, left, he's not talking to me anymore. And he said, I have to admit, I'm despondent. Why? Because I've given my life and I'm beginning to step back and go, 16 years, and what do I have to show for it? I mean, is this Christian thing? Is I've obeyed God. I've been faithful to go where I feel like He's called me to go. I've given up so much. I've taken my family. We have paid a price. And I've got nothing and no one to show for it. And can't you relate? You've been faithful to tell your neighbors about Jesus. You've been faithful to make those stands. You are, you, you are teaching in, in a school where you feel God has called you to. You've taken a profession that you feel God has called you to take because you are living missionally. You are in a community group. You're inviting your neighbors to the cookout. You're, whatever it is, you feel like you're serving the Lord. You're giving up to even be here on a Sunday morning. And yet, where is God? Where's the fruit? How come when I speak the message of the gospel, people aren't saved and the world doesn't change. Why? Well, I can't relate to that at all. (laughs) Yes, of course I can relate to that. I mean, that's the whole issue, is we give our lives. And yet, what's it for? And then we hear messages around us. I saw this quote this week by Joel Osteen. Osteen. He says this, he says, you're going to go through tough times, that's life. But this is what I say, nothing happens to you, it happens for you. See the positive and negative events. Nothing happens to you, it happens for you. This positive thinking message that is so common in the church and so easy to put on a bumper sticker and on our refrigerator is absolute Garbage. Why? Because you go to Iraq right now and you tell those Christian parents who have watched their children beheaded, this is not happening to you, it's happening for you. It's not going to stand the test that they're facing. It stands in our first culture, middle to upper class, United States world, (laughs) and universe and worldview for a moment. But it doesn't stand when real tragedy comes. Paul goes to Corinth. And as he is going to Corinth, I can only imagine what he's thinking. To plant a new church, you've got to be thinking about the people and about the place. And you've got to be 
getting yourself convinced that God is going to do a great thing, that He's called you there, and He's going to make something real that's not presently real. That's church planning, period. And so Paul is doing this, and he goes to the city, and he gets there, and he finds that not everybody loves him. In fact, they disagree with him, and and they oppose him, and they're trying to throw him out of the city and try to throw him in jail. And then even after um, um, planting the church, he goes back a year or so later and finds that the, the people that were you know, deep into homosexuality and thievery and drunkenness and, and covetousness and, 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 and cult of personality and all these other things, stuff that they were saved out of, are now going back to it. And so Paul is, is frustrated. He has to be uh, at a point where he is doubting and skeptical at some degree. Why? Look at 18, Acts 18, verses 9 and 10. This is what we read. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision. Do you hear that? The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many people in this city, or I have many in this city who are my people. Now why did God show up and tell him that? Well, let's just go through it. Um, Do not be afraid. He was afraid. Go on speaking. He didn't want to go on speaking. Do not be silent. He wanted to be silent, pack his bags, and go home. For I am with you. He didn't feel like God was with him. And no one will attack you to harm you. He knew that his life was in danger. For I have many people in this city who are my, or I have many in this city who are my people. He thought that his preaching would just be in vain because he is looking at the people thinking they are entrenched in the present thought and worldview and intellectual commitments and there's no way that these people can become Christians. And so the message here is this. If you doubt you're not weak, you're a believer. If you are skeptical, if you have trouble believing that the gospel is going to have fruit in your specific neighborhood, at your specific workplace, in the lives of your specific children or spouse or friends, if you believe, if you find it hard to believe that the gospel is going to explode in the lives of those that are around you because you see them and you think they will never change, God does not hear me. This is worthless. I want to be silent, pack my bags and go home. Paul gets it. But guess what? God shows up. And God didn't show up and say, you poor pitiful little apostle. He showed up and he says, I am with You stay the course. So are you skeptical? Do you know who God has called you to share the gospel with? Do you know what God has called you to do with your life? And you're skeptical and you're wondering if you can trust God? Guess what? You're in good company. And my prayer in this series is that God's going to show up. And He's going to give you what you need to go on. Secondly, the church never gets it completely right. We've got to understand that believers all doubt and will need God's reaffirming presence. And secondly, the church never completely gets it right. I don't know if you saw it this week, but 
the Acts 29 board asked Mark Driscoll, or actually severed ties with Mark Driscoll and a relationship with him. And I don't know how many people are aware of Mark Driscoll. He's one of the shining stars of the Christian church right now. He started the Acts 29 network that has planted more churches in more cities than any denomination or any network um, in the last, I don't know how many years. His church in Seattle, Seattle being the, the most resistant city to the gospel, the most unchurched city in the gospel, uh, they've seen thousands upon thousands of conversions. And yet the Acts 29 network, the board, severed ties with him because of behavior that was not only unbecoming, but that would disqualify him for, for um, gospel ministry at this time. And they asked him to go get help. And they asked him um, you know, to hopefully one day be restored through that help. And I look at that, and I want you to know, this is a side note, this is not a time to celebrate, and this is not a time to point fingers. This is a time to pray for Mark Driscoll, his wife, and his children, and his church, and for the church. But here's what typically happens. The skepticism in us, the unbelief in us, all of those things, and our skeptical side, and nobody's more skeptical than me. I'm a skeptical man. Wants to look at that and go, yeah, I knew I knew it. You give a guy that much fame, you give... No. You see, if you look at the history of the church, this doesn't surprise God. And when Paul goes to Corinth, he isn't saying, repent and believe in the church. Repent and become a Presbyterian in your view of church government. (laughs) When Paul goes to Corinth, he said, we preach Christ and Him crucified. It was a stumbling block to Jews. It was foolishness to Gentiles. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And dear friends, why do I bring this up? Because I've talked to you and I've lived in churches. And I know that there are many in here that have been absolutely traumatized, if not abused, by churches. And I want you to know, you're not alone. Some of the deepest wounds my wife and I have have come not just from some hypothetical churches, but from churches that we've planted and served. We hurt each other, friends. The church doesn't get it right. We get stuff wrong all the time. We're going to hurt you. You're going to hurt us. So don't, don't make a verdict on God by the church. Make a verdict on God by how He treats His church. Because the most amazing thing is that in all of our mess and all of our craziness and all of our struggling and fighting and, 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 and uh, you know, uh, moral failures and intellectual missteps and theological missteps and all the junk that we do, We are still the bride of Christ. Isn't that amazing? Judge God by His relationship with the church. Don't judge God by the church's relationship with Him and how we treat Him. I have preached this to myself. I've I've prayed this prayer. I've said this to God. God, I love you, but I hate your church right now. And I think that's an okay thing to do with God. But we can't give up on the church. We've got to keep going with the church because God doesn't give up on the church. And one day, someday, He's given us a fast forward of time. One day, someday, He is going to come for His bride, the church, and we're going to be presented in all of our glory, the glory of Christ Himself, and we will be not a mess anymore forever. 
And so don't let the church mess your verdict up about God. I think that's exactly what many were doing in Corinth. And, and Paul had to remind them to act like the church again. In 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11, he said, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And he wrote this, Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that's where most people stop. But that's not all Paul is saying here. But then he wrote this, And such were some of you. Do you see what he's doing? You know, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. What is he doing? He was saying, church, remember, such were some of you. And so when you were dealing with those who were still bound in addiction with alcohol or in a life of homosexuality or in thievery or thuggery or or worshipping the idolatry of SEC football or being sexually immoral, trying to redefine marriage, greedy, coveting their neighbor's car, their new car that they get, whatever bondage that they're in, do you remember there was a day when you were the same? And to be honest with you, you're not much different right now. And so who in the world are you to try to act self-righteous in this world? And if you don't believe me, just look at verses 7 and 8. That's how he introduces verses 9 through 11. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Church, don't act self-righteous out in the world. You're the church. And so how we deal with those outside of, 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 of our church or our context must be with great humility because such were some of, of us and indeed, have we changed that much? And then lastly, oh, this is so big. Truth is not a list of facts, but it's a person. To, to really get this series and where we're going with this... I want you to know that I've struggled probably with this more than I've struggled with anything else I've ever approached. Why? Because the pressure on a pastor to try to answer the doubts and the skepticism of the day, the pressure that I put on myself is to be this. I must be as good, if not better, than Tim Keller. (laughs) That ain't going to happen. I must be as good, if not better, and smarter than Brian Loritz. And and I mean that. These are the thoughts that come to my head. I must be, but I want you to to hear something. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Here is my salvation as a preacher, and it's your salvation as a believer, and it's Tim Keller's, and it's Brian Loritz's too. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And listen, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. We came to you, not with wise and persuasive words, but we came to you and we preached Christ 
crucified. The word of the cross. That's the only intellectual peace you need. The word of the cross of Jesus Christ. Now let me explain this. I believe in gravity. I believe if we go to the top of the Peabody, you know, the Peabody rooftop, and jump off, that there ain't anybody in here that's going to fly away. I believe, you know, 230 out of 230 are going to hit the, hit the concrete. But I couldn't draw a diagram, I couldn't write a paper, and I couldn't give you a reasoned scientific lecture on gravity. But it doesn't matter. If you go to the top of the rooftop of of the Peabody and you jump off, you're going to hit the ground. That's Paul's point. Are there intellectual arguments? Are there things to say? Do our doubts have, have answers? Yes, but that's not the end. No one has come to faith in Jesus Christ through an intellectual argument. Every single person that has ever come to faith in Jesus Christ has come under the conviction that I am a sinner. Jesus is Lord. He has died for my sins. He is the only one that has died for my sins. It is only through faith in His blood that I am forgiven and, and reconciled to God the Father. It's only through faith in Him that I am declared righteous before God and accepted in Him forever. That is a message, and it doesn't matter if you believe it or not. It doesn't matter what your intellect is or what you scored on the ACT or where you went to graduate school or if you went to school at all. It is true no matter what, and all you must do and all we must do is speak it. And people will be convinced because it's true. Thabiti, and I can't pronounce his last name. No idea. And your wife, I have no idea. Um, wrote a chapter in a book, one of the books I've read in preparation for this. Um, it's edited by John Piper. The book is called Think, Love, Do. Great, great resource. The BD did a, uh, he's a famous preacher. He's written a lot. Uh, he is a pastor. I think a First Baptist Church, Cayman Islands. Uh, great man. God's using him in big ways. Uh, he was a Muslim before he was a Christian. And he wrote this. He said, when I am asked, how do I witness to my Muslim friend... Most people want me to tell them something other than the gospel. They want a trick or a secret. What they're really asking is, what worked for you? Can I push that same easy button? Listen to this. But the button was the gospel. The secret was Christ and Him crucified, buried and resurrected to save sinners from the wrath of a holy God, to make them new creatures and to bring them into the family of God. When our mouths are open and the gospel comes out, divine power comes out. The word gives life and makes people new. Think about how powerful our speaking is. Apart from God, we are the only speaking beings in existence. And the form of speaking that has the most power is the gospel. Be confident in the gospel and talk about Jesus. That same gospel that saved you and me is the same gospel that will save our Muslim neighbors and friends. Let us have confidence in this gospel. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Have confidence in the gospel. God puts power, saving power, in our mouths. So as the gospel goes out, the Spirit grants life. Have confidence in that. Trust that. Share that. And I love that.
when my wife is having doubts about how much I love her, she doesn't go to anybody else but me. Why? Because we're in living relationship. That's what Christianity is. We can't talk about God and get to know God. We've got to talk to God. Because that's what He calls us to. A living relationship. This is what sets Christianity apart from every other religion, every other philosophy, any other mindset or worldview in the history of mankind. God, the one who created the universe, so says Christianity, came down created this world, created you and me, and we fell and we rebelled against Him and He gave us over to our sin, but then He sent His Son and He said through faith in Jesus Christ our relationship can be reconciled again because that is what you're created for. You're created for the love that you so want. Yes, do you have the freedom and do you have the right to to be loved? Absolutely, and I love you, so will you be loved by me? That's it. And so as we go through this series, we're going to deal with some intellectual doubts, but here's the real issue. Will you be willing to do business with the God of heaven and earth? Will you be willing to talk to Him? Not will you meet somebody for coffee and argue your finer points and talk about the books that you've read and and get with me, which I'd love to talk to you. I'm not saying don't talk to me. Please talk to me. But that's not where the answer is. If you really want to know God, if you're genuine in wanting to know God, then go talk to God in His Word. Do business there. Because that's what your pastor has to do when I doubt. Who am I to be preaching on doubt and skepticism, O God? I go to His Word, and guess what? Paul is right there with me, and God showed up for Paul, and God will show up for me, and God will show up for you. So it's my hope and prayer that we'll all come to the foot of the cross and we'll let the word of the cross convince us again and we'll live with power and live missionally and be encouraged to go out and to tell a watching world and to love a watching world because we've done a really bad job of it. And it's time to do better. So let's get convinced of the gospel and let's go in gospel clothing and gospel humility and let's try to convince those just like Paul did that don't believe and are going to think we're foolish and are going to want more from us. And let's see what God does. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the beauty of the cross. We thank you that you came down, that you gave your life for us, that we might know you. And I pray, O God, that you would bless the series, that you would bless all that we do here, and that many might be convinced, that we might be convicted of sin and convinced of the truth of the cross of Jesus and the word of the cross. Would you do that for us, O God, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.